Well, thank you, worship team. Thank you for coming this morning. What a beautiful morning to celebrate and worship our holy, glorious God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 this morning. I just grabbed a Bible trying to find the page, but uh, I think it's about 560 or something like that in the Bibles here in, our, in this room. So, Isaiah 6. Well, this is obviously vacation season. Um, as most of you know, uh, the open door camp out is this weekend, so a lot of families are out there enjoying the outdoors out there. Uh, Pastor Nate just got back from a trip out west. Um, I'm starting a two-wheeled adventure this afternoon going uh, easterly. And uh, someone who just got back from vacation time this week told me, it's kind of hard to adjust when you've been away on vacation, sitting on a dock, looking at a lake, no cell service, no data, and you kind of experience God a bit more closely sometimes there, and then you have to come back to the news. Senseless shootings. Senseless war. Inflation. Being plugged in as we all are, for the most part, can kind of keep us agitated, kind of like a low-grade fever sometimes, can keep us maybe arguing about whose fault it all is. In, uh, in Isaiah 6 today, there were troubled times as well. But I, I believe what Isaiah 6 says to us is that we can have confidence in a very messy world, and the short version is this if we keep our focus on who we're serving here. As our songs have said, he is holy. And that's a vision that Isaiah received, was about the holiness of God, the holiness of the God he was called to serve. Now some of you might wonder, why are we in Isaiah? I thought, we've been advertising we're in 2 Kings. And why are we in Isaiah? Well, take a look at Isaiah 6, the very first phrase. What does it say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Who did we study last week, class? <laughs> Uzziah. 2 Kings 15, and we focused on 2 Chronicles 26 last week, the, the fuller version of the life of Uzziah. And I think sometimes we forget when we're studying the kings in sequence, that at the same time, God was using prophets who were ministering to these kings and their people. And some of them are the writing prophets, such as uh, the well-known uh, Isaiah. So we're just going to insert a little bit of what God was saying to Isaiah when Uzziah's kingship was over. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died... I, Isaiah, saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, or seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled 
with smoke. This is essentially God's way of saying to Isaiah as he was about to call him to serve as a prophet, God is unfazed by all the mess that the world is in. God is unfazed. The news bothers us. I'm sure the news bothered uh, Isaiah as well. But while, while, while the world is doing its sinful thing, God is in heaven, enthroned, holy, and glorious, and in charge. Um, Isaiah grew up, it seems, during the reign of King Uzziah. We saw last week that to this point, he was the king that had reigned in Judah, the southern portion, the longest, some 52 years. He had kind of a mixed review spiritually because probably for the first 40 years of that long reign, he seemed to be following the Lord. In the last 10, 12, he had fallen to pride. When he usurped the role of a priest and decided, I'm king, I can go into the temple too. And God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life because of his pride. So not only was uh, Uzziah, Uzziah suffering spiritually, the whole nation really was. We didn't look at Second Kings so much last week, but we found a couple, there's a statement in there that says that during the, role, the, the reign of, of Uzziah, the high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. We, can, we see that almost with every king. No one was stopping this. And the issue is that if you, if you go to where pagans go, you end up doing what pagans do. And so this became a real temptation for Israel. In the chapter just preceding Isaiah 6, would be Isaiah 5, and he lists a, a number of things that God is about to judge. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field. So uh, the greedy, the ones who just, it's all about expanding and accumulating. Or this one, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks. There's an addiction problem. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. It's like they don't even think about it. They just do something deceitful or cheating. It's just they, they have no ethics. Or another one, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. If you kind of watch that legislative process throughout our country, this is, they're trying to codify that which is evil and say it's actually good. And another one about alcohol. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. You're really good at something. Drinking. You know your drinks. Okay. So Isaiah was well aware of the sins of the nation at this point. And God was calling him to go and, and bring his word to these sinful people. But he wanted Isaiah to actually be unburdened by their sin. It's so easy to become burdened by the sins of our culture as believers because we are especially sensitive to those things. And God was saying, you don't need to be. We don't need to be in despair. But we will if we just focus on, on the news sites and the news feed because it, it's not good. We all get that. But young Isaiah needed to be encouraged to serve in that environment. And the way young Isaiah would do that is by understanding who God is. Young people, it's so good to see 
you guys come to church, our youth group. It's, it's exciting times, actually, and uh, to see our young people inviting other young people. And it is such a crucial time, those teen years, because you are at that point where you are deciding if you will believe in God's word and serve him or not. The alternative is, the alternative is to serve self. Will you believe God's word and serve him? To make a rational choice of whether you will pursue God's word and service to God, you need to understand who God is. It's not about discovering yourself. It is first about discovering who God is. And young Isaiah here is treated by God with a personal glimpse of that glorious scene where God is enthroned. And so he reports it to us. And this, this report, this is a vision indeed, but it's not a, like a fake vision. It's not like it's animated or something. This, this is reality, a, a glimpse of heaven. And so what is in this glimpse? I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord is the word master. It's not the, the word God, Jehovah, but the, the master word. He is, he is enthroned in charge. In fact, that's why he's seated. He's not pacing. We pace. We're concerned. How will this turn out? He's not. Because he has full sovereign control of all things. So he's seated where? On a throne. Because he's the king. Some have wondered if this is a, a scene of the, the literal temple of Solomon still intact at that time, or is this a scene of heaven? I lean towards believing it's, it's, it's a view of heaven. It kind of is mixing maybe almost the metaphors of the temple because the temple was to reflect the presence of God. But this seems to be a heavenly temple because the earthly temple didn't have a throne. This is a enthroned king, high and exalted. In fact, that even suggests more than maybe the 50, 60 feet it was to the peak of the ceiling of the holy place in the temple. This is high and exalted. This is like over the universe. And the train of his robe filled the temple. If you try to think about God spatially, obviously he was more than just that spot in the physical Ark of the Covenant between the, 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 uh, the crafted uh, cherubim. He's obviously not that small. Here the vision is his train of his robe filled the temple, but we know that, that God is, cannot be contained in Solomon in 1 Kings 8.27 when he was dedicating the temple, the amazing temple that, that he built. He said, heaven and earth cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. So we get it. God is, is huge over the universe and in charge of all things. So the, the impact immediately for Isaiah is you, you might be worried about who the next king will be. Because Uzziah's died. You might be worried because this is now three successive generations of kings that started godly and fell in pride. Not very encouraging. Don't worry. Isaiah, stop worrying and start serving the God who's in charge. We don't just need to understand our, our culture or our people better. We just need to focus on understanding God better and that will apply to every culture verse 2 now we 
see the description of the angels serving, worshiping God, celebrating him. Above him were seraphs. We have the word seraphim. It's, a, it's an angel word in the plural. We don't know how many. We don't know if there are two or three or if there was you know, dozens or hundreds. But they were all around the throne. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their face. Two covered their feet. Two were flying. The seraphim or seraphs are only mentioned here in the Bible. They are a class of angels. There are ranks and classes uh, there's, within the angelic realm, there's the archangel, there's the cherubim, seraphs, and others, messengers. Um, I, I don't know that we have to try to understand or interpret every detail about this angelic description, but, but when, I, when, I, when I see the description that the wings are covering their face and their feet, you get a, a clear sense of their humility before God. Angels have to be pretty glorious creatures, but they aren't strutting. Because they are in the presence of God and they are in full humility mode before the throne. And then with two feet they are flying because they are not inactive. The king is seated on the throne. But the angels are busy worshiping. And they seemingly the, the seraphs are, are these angels that are devoted exclusively to the worship of God. The word seraph actually means to burn and so you get the sense that they are glorious, burning, glowing, uh, which would make sense because they are surrounding the actual throne of the actual God of the universe who is glorious. And so they are burning with their praises. Uh, we, are, we are so inadequate to picture the presence of God, aren't we? So they are in humility before God. They are serving God. And if you, if you think of those two things, humility and service, it kind of captures what God wants for us. To be humble before him and then to serve him. What did Uzziah, the, the, the recently departed king, not have was humility. And so as God calls Isaiah, he says, you've got to have humility before me by understanding who I am. And then if you understand who I am humbly, you will serve me. There, there, is no, there is no option. And so they are declaring the greatness of God. They never seem to get bored either. After hundreds of thousands of years of praising God, they are never bored of it. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And at the sound of their voice, the whole place shakes and smokes. So, so the, the normally secret, invisible agents of God, angels, are here shaking uh, the temple. Now, indeed, Isaiah may have been at or in, the, not in, probably unless he was a priest, but at the, the temple itself. So, so maybe that's the vision, heavenly vision is, is, is mixed in with the, the reality of his environment. Somehow Isaiah, though, is privy to what it's like to be in the presence of God. Holy is the key description of God throughout Scripture. As you've probably heard or studied maybe sometime that the word holy basically means to be set apart. So this, this one is different. Which one is not like the others? This one. He is holy. He's different. Sometimes I think we have reduced the idea of holiness to mean the absence of sin. 
And it's true. There is no, there is no sin. There is no, no evil, nothing uh, inappropriate or unjust about God. He is, he, is, he is absolutely without any sin or imperfection or weakness. So that is true, but it is not just a negative what is not there. It is what is actually there, the purity, the, the awesome otherness of God. He is unique. He is other. He is different. He is set apart. If you deeply love your spouse, you might have a tiny taste of, of the distinctness of God compared to everything else because this woman, this man is distinctly unique to you. There is they, she or he is your one and only and God is meant to be the one and only of the universe because he is the creator. He is the saint, sustainer. He is the one who deserves all of our worship. And if you notice as we've been studying in Kings, the temptation of Satan has always been other gods. It's even like it's okay to worship God and other gods. Because that would dilute the significance of what it means to worship God. Because he is totally, uniquely, only God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, distinct, unique, and other. Three times, holy, holy, holy. Anytime something is emphasized, repeated, it probably means it's emphasized, right? That that's, If you're urging your kids to get moving, you say, come, come, come. You know, it, it's an emphasis, but I think it's probably more. In fact, it could well be that these seraphim who understand God because they're in his presence are reflecting somehow the threeness of God. Holy. 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 We, we don't know how the three in one all fits in our, fin- our finitude, but, but they would. In fact, there's some indication from something that, that John wrote. John told us that Isaiah, in this scene, actually saw the glory of Jesus Christ. In verse 39 of John 12, he's, he actually quotes the entire verse of our, uh, of our chapter, 6 verse 10. This is just a phrase out of it. And after quoting this verse, John says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord God Almighty, holy, 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 he was looking at the glory of Jesus in some perfect sense as well. The whole earth, the second line says, they were saying to each other, the whole earth is full of his glory. They could have said the whole, the heavens are filled with his glory, but they didn't say that. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So it's like, it's like the first line is focused on the actual essence and person of the triune God. The second line says, and by the way, Isaiah, down there where you are is also a reflection of the glory of God. The whole earth is filled with his glory because perhaps when, when you've seen a heavenly vision like this, Isaiah could be tempted to think, forget earth. Nothing, nothing of value here. And the angels in this declaration make clear that, yes, earth is filled with his glory. Maybe that's why we like to go on vacation and get away and see some of these great creation scenes. Because somehow the glory of God becomes, it's visible, tangible, touchable, You can take pictures of it. It's breathable. If you look at a lake view or 
a sunset. By the way, we have the best sunsets in all of Ozaki County. Just come to the back uh, parking lot. Some, other, some of you have been doing that. Great place to view sunsets, the glory of God. Birds in the nature center if you're walking through. Uh, the deer staring you down on the bike path. The deer are also eating Priscilla's hostas and hydrangeas. So this isn't quite the Garden of Eden yet, but still the glory of God in all that he has made. God is pleased if we praise him for what he has made. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness, everything in it, the seas, everything, Psalm 24. God's pleased if we praise him for what he made, but don't become one of those who says, I'll just focus on worshiping God in nature. Because while the earth is filled with his glory, there is no substitute for worshiping God with flesh and blood redeemed sinners. Because God's greatest work is not even that beauty out there. His greatest work is when he takes broken, sinful hearts and redeems, repairs, transforms them, and actually joins them to one another. That, that is miraculous glory. So Isaiah has been able to view this amazing and feel this amazing revelation of God. How does he respond? Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined or undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He says, oh no, I'm in trouble. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah knows well he has just written chapter 5, right? Woe to you, 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 the greedy, the drinkers, the deceivers, the, the sinners. Woe to all of you. And then he gets this revelation of God and he goes, and woe is me. Woe is me. I'm sinful too. I've got unclean lips, probably like a metaphor of the whole person, but the lips, this is a lot where our evil comes out sometimes. Woe is me. How, how much does God's heart ache when our spiritual sensitivity is mostly calibrated to see the evil out there and not the sin in here? But Isaiah got it. It was a, a wake-up call. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, and, and that's the thing that will... will, 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 will address that chronic tendency we have to defend ourselves and complain about the sins of others. It's, it's spiritual clarity to see ourselves as God sees us in his holiness. But then Isaiah's problem was, so what do I do about it? I'm, I'm a sinner, unclean. I've seen the king, his holiness. What do you do? Verses 6 and 7 basically tell us Isaiah had just done it. Because that's what you do when you realize your sin in the presence of the Holy God. You acknowledge it. You admit it. You confess it. And indeed, there is this 
affirmation. The seraphs take a live coal from the altar, touch his lips, and said, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your guilt is atoned for. You're forgiven, Isaiah. You're forgiven. Best news ever. While this took place 740 years before Christ, it anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ, obviously, who would be the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, wiping out the sin debt of all those who'd put their trust in God who promised to provide for their sin, paying forward the sin debt of all of us who live now after. He paid for it all. He took away the sins of the world. This, the, the, the altar of the temple at the point of the cross was replaced by the cross. And so we have forgiveness. We need to understand, though, what kind of forgiveness this might be. There are really... Uh, two applications of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Two applications, just one cross, just one, one payment for all sin, one source of all forgiveness, because there's two rather distinct applications. I believe that Isaiah here has already been a, he's already been a believer, but now there is a, a different kind of forgiveness that, that he is granted. There is eternal forgiveness, and there is we'll see fellowship forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness is once for all. You could call it positional forgiveness. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are completely forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. Acts 10 refers to this. All the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Done deal. You are positionally forever forgiven. Your salvation is secure. When we trust in Jesus Christ that he died for our sin and rose again, we are eternally forgiven. Nothing can change that. Amen? That one's done. That, Isaiah had done that. I trust that you have. If for some reason you are uncertain about that, please talk to one of us pastors. We'd love to help you come to the assurance of your eternal forgiveness. But we keep sinning, right? So we need fellowship, forgiveness. This is something we experience repeatedly, continually. It is a relational forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 refers to this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Two verses earlier, he had said very clearly, it's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us. So it's the same source of forgiveness, but it's now applied on a daily basis for our closeness, our fellowship with Christ. To enjoy fellowship with God, we must humbly confess known sin. We'll never think of all of our sin. So don't, don't, don't look inside and say, I've got to think of everything. You won't. But understanding if there's something between me and God, then just acknowledge it, and God forgives us to restore our closeness with Him. I love the simplicity and the immediacy of the forgiveness of Isaiah. I'm undone. What do I do? You've done it. And, and, and your sin's atoned for. You're forgiven. So we are thanking God for both kinds of forgiveness. Why was this necessary? It's because God wanted to use Isaiah. And for God to use us, we must be continually conscious of our need for forgiveness. That's, the, that's what humility basically is, is acknowledging our, our continual sinfulness means I am continually forgiven. It's not to doubt our salvation, 
the positional forgiveness, but it's to enjoy the relational freedom. That the blood of Jesus is like this unending flow of grace that covers and covers and covers and flows down and covers everything, and we can enjoy it as we acknowledge our sin. If God wants to use you, you will, you will willingly embrace that continual reality because God uses cleansed vessels. Jesus said, John 15, to his disciples, verse 3, you are already clean. You are already clean, referring to their salvation. Next verse says, so now abide in me so that you can bear fruit. Abiding means constant openness, walking in the light. Or Paul told Timothy, first, 2 Timothy 2, 21, that God wants to use you, Timothy, so you need to be a clean vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. He already had positional forgiveness. He would just need to experience that relational closeness that comes from acknowledging sin. So Isaiah is now at that point ready to serve. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? By the way, us kind of alludes to the triune nature of God too, doesn't it? Whom shall I send? Who will go forth? And I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah was ready and willing. And then the Lord says, here's what you're facing. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That doesn't sound like a very successful ministry, does it? You notice that God asked for Isaiah's commitment to serve him before telling him, almost no one will respond rightly to your ministry. Is that bait and switch? I don't think so. Isaiah was not going to serve God because he would be successful or popular serving God. Isaiah was serving God because God was worthy to be served. And that makes all the difference. Rejection wasn't going to change Isaiah's commitment. He signed the blank check already in verse 8. Who will go? I will unconditionally. And then God says, yeah, they're not going to understand. They're not going to perceive. Their hearts are callous. Their ears are dull. Their eyes are closed. And uh, it's basically going to be a rejection of your ministry. That's not going to make a very good podcast, is it? Isaiah, the ignored prophet. He's facing a ministry of rejection, but he says, I'll do it anyhow. And, and God says, good, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Someone who is going to serve me no matter what. When I was in seminary, sitting for those years next to guys who were going into ministry, as I intended to, going into pastoral ministry, going into missions overseas, uh, working with various Christian organizations. 
I'm pretty sure that to a man, we, we all wanted to have an impact on people uh, for the sake of Christ. We want to see lives changed. If we're really honest, we probably would have said, I hope to see a lot of lives changed. And I hope a lot of people really appreciate me. Because that's how... Numbers are how the world reflects success or measures success. Numbers. Popularity is how the world measures success. And, and God doesn't see it that way. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, very unpopular, eventually went away in exile to, with his people to Egypt, where he presumably died. Uh, some traditions say he died at the hands of the Jews themselves. And this Isaiah, his death isn't recorded in Scripture, but a non-biblical ancient book has a detailed story of how supposedly Isaiah was martyred by being sawn in half. Um, Hebrews 13, our New Testament, says that some indeed, not naming Isaiah, were indeed sawn in half, may well have been a reference to Isaiah. So we're meeting Isaiah at the launch of his ministry saying yes, not knowing what's ahead, but God was worthy of his service. Have you said yes to God as a believer? Yes to service? Lately? If God were to write you a note in plain English, saying, here is my will for you the next 18 months. The rest of 2022 and all of 2023. And, and here's, here's my instructions. These are the things I want you to begin doing to serve me in gratitude for your salvation. Not to earn your salvation. Not to prove your salvation. But in gratitude for salvation, this is what I want you to do the next 18 months. If, if you got a note like that in plain English, would God say one of these three things? A, would he say, you're doing too much. You need to narrow it down and focus. Because that's probably what he would say to some. Would he say, you're, you're, you're right on course, B. You're doing pretty much exactly what I want you to do. Or would you say, see, I want you to step up your serving. A, B, or C. If it's step up, it's there's someone to reach out to. There's something to volunteer for. There's something you'll sign up for, you'll, you'll get training for. There's something... You would increase your, your commitment, which means your sacrifice of something. And if you're seeking for God's will for how to serve him, will you follow through, number one? And number two, why? And this is the important one. Because I think Isaiah got it right. Because he'd seen the Lord. Our motives are, are really everything when it comes to serving God. 
And, and I think that's what this, this passage ties with Isaiah is, is all about. Let me suggest some motives for why you'd make the commitment to faithfully serve God. It might be because you say, I'm good at something and I have something to offer that people need. And you probably do. There's that thing of spiritual gifts, okay? resources, all kinds of... There's something people need, you've got it. Could be because you think you'll feel better about yourself if you serve more and get off the couch. <laughs> yeah, that sometimes is there. Could be you think you'll be successful and be appreciated more. You could really use some appreciation. Or it could be that God is worthy of my faithful service because he is holy and glorious. We, we need to constantly assess our motives, whether we're in ministry full-time as a career, whether you're already fully engaged on the, on the brink of too much, whether you're under-involved in, in the plan of God, whatever it is, we need to be constantly evaluating our motives because he is worthy first and most of all. So God has brought Isaiah and you and I to reality about ministry and serving him that sometimes it'll be rejected. And so with this dose of reality, uh, Isaiah then asks, how long? Okay. How long, O Lord? Verse 11. And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, and the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But, here's the good news. So that's all like, I'm going to be coming to judge. But as the terebrinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Some will respond. Everybody else will be rejecting the majority. It even gives a percentage there. What's he talking about? Well, first of all, uh, he's talking about the future of Judah, the southern two tribes where Isaiah served and where Uzziah had just reigned. Someday they would be sent far away to Babylon. Actually, within less than 20 years, the northern 10 tribes that we've studied will be deported for the most part throughout the uh, kingdom of Assyria. Isaiah would live to see that to the, of the northern neighbors. It would be over a hundred years before Judah, before these, these things would be fulfilled for the tribes of Judah and Benjamin where Isaiah was serving. So God will be very patient with Judah, but eventually they're going to be taken away. Taken away, except maybe for a tenth. I think this could be a, a literal percentage of, of the, the population that was left in Judea after the Babylonian captivity and all the different departures. There's like 10% left, and they would still be there when, when Ezra and Nehemiah would eventually bring people back and rebuild the temple. But the good news really is at the end where God says, I will always have some there will be a holy seed. That'll be the stump. So if you cut something down, there's a stump. And there'll be the holy seed. Remember, that's, that's the characteristic of God that the angels were accenting. Holy, holy, holy. We're, we're supposed to be like that. Peter would say it, quoting the Old Testament, that God says, be holy like I am holy. 
Not be holy like the people at Open Door Bible Church. That's not our standard. The standard is, God, what's it? What, how would you drive me towards holiness next? Holy is the Lord of hosts. And so there'll be a stump, a remnant, a few who will be that way. I was a grade schooler, probably, I'm guessing 10 or 12, when a big storm came through Kansas over our farm, much like the one that came through here a few weeks ago. And the biggest feature <clears throat> on, the, on the front yard of our, our farm growing up was this big tree. And that storm, uh, it blew the majority of that tree down, split it, ruined it. It was down. So the next morning, Dad cut the tree down, <clears throat> cut it right down ground level. My, my memory is probably a two-foot stump. The rest of the summer, uh, growing season, these shoots would come up, you know, this high, this high. And so I remember Dad coming with the clippers, and he said, we're going to clip these off, except for one. And he just picked one. And we let that one grow. Today, that little shoot is a 50-some-year-old tree, once again beautifying the front yard of my sister's place. Stump is a good thing. But do you ever feel like a, a stump that's been cut down at some point in your Christian walk? And you kind of go, I'm not much used to God. Because what you're believing is something about maybe your insecurities and personality. Uh, you're maybe believing the criticisms you've received. Rejection. Isaiah is warned by God that rejection is, is really par for, for ministry. There's been hurts, there's been failures. Or maybe you're tired and, and lazy, whatever. There's so many reasons why we feel like stumps and forget that God is... God has another season for each of us. The holy seed will be the stump in the land. My concern for Open Door Bible Church is that we do not simply grow in size, but that we grow in service for Christ. Each of us individually, all of us corporately, and so we have to ask, what are the tasks God had for us? Because God saved us first for his glory. Personally, we know for our uh, enjoyment of his glory forever in heaven. But on earth, which is still filled with his glory, on earth, his purpose, he saved us to use us. We were not saved by good works, but we were indeed saved for good works. That God had planned beforehand, Ephesians 2.10. In the midst of a very messy, sinful world, it can be discouraging. We can say it's not worth it. We can be distracted by the things that distract the world. But he is calling us to be a holy seed so that his church will flourish like that stump and yield the next crop. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you for this uh, amazing glimpse of your glory and holiness. We, uh, 
We're still just reading this word on a page and can't quite imagine being there. On this summer, while we might go into beautiful areas that reveal your glory on earth, I pray that we might be drawn to guess and to imagine and to anticipate what it's like to be in your glorious presence in heaven forever. And so give us, Lord, a perspective and a commitment uh, to sign a blank check, to seek the opportunities, to be careful and prayerful about how we would uh, be involved in your plan. Thank you for teaching us through Isaiah, the man you used so many years ago. In Jesus' name, amen.